0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um,
1: well, hello. Uh, as Dr. Warwick said, I studied uh, post-conflict institution building in, uh, at the London School of Economics. I focused particularly on uh, regions and states that experience a high degree of uh, ethno-national and sectarian division. So Northern Ireland is a uh, good topic uh, for that that specialty. Um, So there are two things I want to uh, accomplish today I want to give you guys today. and The first is an introduction to the politics of Northern Ireland and how the institutions are structured there. And then the second is to give you a look at a major theory in the conflict studies uh, field. And that is the consociationalism theory, which is a theory um, On building institutions in divided societies. Uh, So, let's see. Come on. (laughs) I'm hitting them both. All right. Let's see if I can get this working. (laughs) Yeah. All right. (laughs) Well. A question I want everyone to keep in mind as we go through this lecture uh, that I hope we can talk about at the end um, is, was the consociational method chosen by the framers of the Belfast Agreement uh, the best way or the best method of conflict resolution um, in this case? And uh, what could it say about future peace agreements uh, in regions and states experiencing high degrees of division and conflict? Well, I don't
0: know if you can see what's happening here, but it's not, um, it's not I see what that. To OK. You back
1: on okay. Yes, of course. Okay, you <laughs> yeah, I will. I'll continue. OK, so hopefully we can get these slides working. Um, but luckily, I have notes. So <laughs> uh, I want to start off uh, by just going through uh, consociationalism as a theory. Within the field of conflict studies. Uh, so, the goal of consociationalism is a democratic solution to societies with durable ethnic division and political conflict. And that, uh, that word durable is going to be really important for uh, as we go along and talk about, uh, about conflict studies and about consociationalism. Uh, so, the theory was first promoted by a renowned scholar, Ern Leiphardt in 1969 in his work, Consociational Democracy, where he focused on states uh, such <laughs> in Europe, such as uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, Switzerland, uh, states that had a high degree of linguistic and, and national division, uh, but have been able to overcome that through power sharing and uh, incorporating all aspects of society into the, the state infrastructure. Uh, the theory kind of waned a little bit through the decades, but was resurrected with the case of Northern Ireland, uh, which many have said is the most successful case of consociationalism uh, in the more modern era. Uh, And so scholars such as uh, John McGarry and Brendan O'Leary have done a lot of work studying consociationalism, focusing on the Northern Irish model, uh, and applying it to uh, other states such as uh, post-invasion Iraq. So, consociationalism is an institutional approach to conflict management, conflict resolution, and conflict transformation. It seeks to build institutions that can bring all national minorities uh, into the fold of the, the state and give them all a stake in the governance and the institutions. Um, really, there are two major approaches in the literature uh, uh, to conflict management conflict resolution. Uh, The first is an integrationist approach. Uh, It's a preferred approach to anyone who favors the idea of a nation state. Uh, Integrationists think that uh, identity is flexible, and thus they want to promote an overarching, all-encompassing identity for the entire state uh, that can bring everyone into the fold, maybe a civic nationalism, uh, like is expressed in the United States. Um, And they also encourage a non-ethnic or cross-ethnic agenda in politics uh, and thus favor more of a majoritarian electoral system where candidates have to reach out to a broad coalition and not just within their certain ethno-national group. uh, Accommodationists see identity as more durable and uh, less flexible in certain circumstances uh, where there's deep division and deep ethno-national sentiment. Uh, and so they, th- they feel that states should recognize multiple identities uh, that might exist within their territory. Uh, and it's kind of the idea of a plurinational state, or a state that has multiple nationalities contained within it. Uh, to do so, to incorporate everyone into the, into the fold and all of these identities, uh, they promote power sharing uh, and that includes all sizable communities into the institutions. They promote proportionality and segmented autonomy for certain uh, sizable groups, and uh, as well as pluralism and federalism. Uh, so there are four key principles uh, to consociationalist theory. Uh, the first is executive power sharing, giving all sizable communities uh, a stake in the system, incorporating them all within the executive. Uh, there's autonomy and self-government, uh, specifically for uh, territorially segmented uh, national minorities. Uh, Proportionality is the third in the electoral system that gives, that ensures proportional representation for everyone in the state or territory. And then the fourth is veto rights, so that uh, the minority uh, can veto, uh, or has a a say to veto the will of the majority. Um, Consociationalists also uh, promote Guarantees for human rights uh, and minority rights, specifically in areas such as education, employment, religion, language, uh, to combat discrimination. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. Um, Hey, here we go. All right, (laughs) well, I wanted to start out with this quote because I think this quote. encompasses a lot of what consociationalists feel about durable divisions and about the the conflict in Northern Ireland. So I'll read it to you now. (laughs) Uh, It's a deeply divided society, Northern Ireland. It continues that way. While one can agree on political and security measures, it takes a very long time, generations perhaps, to change people's hearts and minds. So while this is a very important step, no one should think that trust and love is going to break out tomorrow between two communities in Northern Ireland. That will take a long time, but this is a tremendous step forward. Uh, the this he's referring to is uh, the St. Andrew's Agreement in 2007. Uh, and this is Senator George uh, Mitchell, who is the US envoy to the peace process. I'll talk more about him and, and the process later in the lecture. All right, this is the overview of what we're going to do. Uh, Since I got started, I'll skip this map of where Northern Ireland is situated relative to Ireland and the United Kingdom. And these are the six historic counties of Ireland that uh, make up Northern Ireland. All right, so here's the introduction that we've already been going through. Uh, So I was talking about uh, guarantees for uh, minority rights are critical in consociationalists and for most uh, in the conflict studies field. So what are the merits of consociationalism as an approach to conflict management and conflict resolution? First is that it promotes fairness through proportionality, ensuring that everyone is represented in the state, everyone has a stake in the state, and everyone is brought into the fold, uh, while recognizing their unique and uh, important identity. Second. Power sharing ensures that everyone has a stake from the most radical to the most conservative uh, in the governance of the state and in the peace process, and ensures that instead of ostracizing radicals who could destabilize the system, it brings them into the fold and ultimately hopes to transform and moderate their views as they seek to continue uh, the governance of the state or region. Uh, Third, it builds confidence by bringing everyone to the table, ensuring everyone's working together uh, again and having a stake in the system. Uh, Hopefully that confidence building will breed further uh, integration as time goes by. And then fourth, sometimes it's just a more realistic option. Uh, Integration isn't likely uh, in the short term in states experiencing deep ethno-national division such as Northern Ireland, as you saw in that uh, quote from Senator Mitchell. Uh, And sometimes accommodating the deep and durable ethno-national identities in a consociational approach uh, is the best way to manage a conflict. Uh, But just because uh, these identities are brought in and recognized in an accommodationist approach in the short term as the peace process continues, there is a possibility of leading to more integration. Uh, A quote from uh, Brendan O'Leary and John McGarry Consociation can lead to social transformation in the long run and can decay organically as integration occurs. So the hope is as confidence builds uh, across ethno uh, sectarian divides, as uh, people are working together within the system, in the executive, in the assembly, that communities begin to integrate, uh, radicals begin to moderate and a state is transformed into a more cohesive whole. So consociationalism isn't necessarily a plan for the for the long term for the foreseeable future, but for the immediate peace process. So let's start talking about the conflict uh, in Northern Ireland, the conflict is known as the Troubles, uh, and it went from about roughly in the 1960s until the Belfast Agreement of 1998. Uh, so. The conflict uh, originates with the partition of Ireland in the 1920s after the Irish War of Independence from the United Kingdom. Uh, The six counties that I showed you earlier of Northern Ireland chose to stay within uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, It's a heavily Protestant region. It's a region with a great deal of support for the monarchy, for the Union. Uh, And at that point, the uh, Catholic Irish nationalist population was very small in the region uh, and a significant minority. I want to stress, though, that the uh, conflict in Northern Ireland is not primarily a religious conflict. Uh, And while discrimination against the Catholic minority uh, in housing, in employment, in education was a significant motivator for violence and for the conflict, this is primarily a nationalist conflict, Uh, a conflict between two groups with two different allegiances uh, to national communities, the Irish Nationalists and the Unionists. Um, and so I think that's really important to keep in mind going forward. Uh, so the, the conflict involved both aspects of civil disobedience against uh, the United Kingdom and against the Northern Irish government, and also armed struggle and paramilitarism uh, on both sides of the conflict. Uh, on the nationalist side, you had the Provisional Irish Republican Army, or the IRA. And on the uh, unionist side, you had the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF. Uh, This period of time saw a great deal of violence, a lot targeted against civilians, uh, terrorist attacks, deep divisions within communities, peace walls erected to keep the Unionists and Nationalists, Protestants and Catholics separated. Uh, And all in all, uh, 3,500 people, mostly civilians, were killed throughout the conflict. Um, So there was a deep amount of distrust, of hatred, of violence throughout this period. Uh, and uh, specifically the, the nationalist uh, struggle against both the, the British Army, who was uh, accused of collusion with the heavily Protestant, heavily Unionist security for, uh, Northern Irish security forces, uh, as well as with the, the UVF. Uh, the first attempt to resolve the conflict in Northern Ireland was known as the Sunningdale Agreement in 1973. It was also the first attempt as consociational governance in Northern Ireland that brought the nationalists and the unionists together. However, this agreement was opposed by both the IRA and the UVF, uh, which ensured that stability wasn't uh, wasn't probable in the long run. Uh, So the the IRA specifically opposed uh, any deal that didn't involve reunification of the island of Ireland And the UVF opposed the proposition of a cross-border institution that would link the Northern Irish (laughs) government with the Republic of Ireland's government. Uh, Ultimately, the UVF encouraged uh, massive strikes in 1974 that escalated into violence, collapsing the Northern Irish government and leading to direct British rule uh, that lasted until the uh, 1998 Belfast Agreement. Changing demographics were really a big charge to to bring everyone to the peace uh, process, to bring everyone to the table. Uh, throughout this period, the Catholic minority was growing rapidly, uh, much more rapidly than the Protestant majority. So the gap between majority and minority was significantly narrowing. Um, and so, the man picture here, Jerry Adams, who is the leader of Sinn Fein, which is often called the uh, political wing of the IRA, uh, throughout the 80s, was, giving se- was in secret talks with unionists to, to get the peace process rolling as they realized that the changing demographics uh, weren't going to make uh, the current situation tenable for the, for the future. And so the peace agreement that ended the troubles and ended the conflict in Northern Ireland was called the Belfast Agreement or is also called the Good Friday Agreement, because it was agreed to on Good Friday in 1998. Uh, So a little bit of background on the Belfast Agreement. Uh, These are the major parties uh, in uh, Northern Ireland. On the Unionist side, you have the Ulster Unionist Party, uh, which is viewed as the more moderate party, and the Democratic Unionist Party, which is considered the more radical. Uh, And on the Nationalist side, You have the Social Democratic and Labor Party, which is considered the more moderate of the two, and Sinn Féin, which is considered the more radical, again, uh, often referred to as the the political wing of the IRA. Uh, And so the, the talks really kick off in 1994 publicly with the ceasefire by the IRA and by the UVF. However, the ceasefire for the IRA does not last, and Sinn Fein doesn't agree to the preconditions to the talks until 1997. The preconditions, the the major ones, were disarmament of paramilitary forces and a promise to find a peaceful solution uh, and to renounce violence throughout the process. Uh, Sinn Fein finally agrees to those terms in 1997, and the IRA begins the process of Continuing its ceasefire and demilitarizing. Uh, however, uh, Sinn Féin joining the talks uh, resulted with <coughs> the DUP leaving the talks, uh, in opposition to their presence. Uh, the DUP also um, opposed any talks of cross-border institutions linking the Republic of Ireland with Northern Ireland. However, the talks continued without them, and all parties came to terms in 1998. Uh, with significant external pressure, uh, both between the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom, uh, stressing that if the peace process failed, they would jointly rule Northern Ireland and govern Northern Ireland, uh, which was not ideal for either party. Uh, And then the United States put a great deal of pressure on the peace process, with President Clinton opening up the White House and in direct communication with the leaders of all parties, which controversially includes, included Jerry Adams. Uh, and then he sent Senator Mitchell over to, to help with the peace process and help facilitate the peace process. A lot of people say the significant Irish population in the United States put that pressure on President Clinton, uh, and they uh, continue to be involved in the, in the peace process throughout this time. Uh, so like, like I said, all parties agreed to this document in 1998, uh, and it had to be passed uh, by by a referendum in both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to amend the constitution there. <laughs> and it passed uh, with 71% in Northern Ireland, so it had significant amount of support, even with the DUP opposing its adaptation. Uh, so there are three key components, um, just in a broad sense, of, of the Belfast Agreement. Uh, the first is that it guarantees mutual recognition. And the United Kingdom recognizes the Irish nationalists as a national minority uh, within the territory of Northern Ireland. Uh, And then it also institutionalizes and cements what's known as the consent principle. Uh, The consent principle recognizes the legitimacy of those in Northern Ireland seeking to stay within the United Kingdom, as well as the legitimacy of those seeking a united Ireland and recognizes the right to self-determination for the people of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. What this means is, as long as a majority in Northern Ireland wish to stay in the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland will stay in the United Kingdom. If uh, eventually a majority wants to leave the United Kingdom and rejoin uh, a united Irish state, uh, a majority in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland would have to agree to it uh, through a referendum. Uh, It also enshrines the European uh, Convention of Human Rights in law to ensure minority protections and uh, human rights for for all persons in Northern Ireland, which was a key stipulation for the Catholics and the Irish nationalists. Um, And it uh, promised the decommissioning of weapons and the disarming of paramilitary forces and ensured that that would happen throughout the the process. All right, so the bulk of what I want to spend my time on is talking about the institutions of Northern Ireland, how this peace process was put into effect, how all parties were brought into the fold of the government, um, and how those four principles uh, of consociationalism play out uh, in this case study. Uh, So the first is proportionality. Uh, And that is done through the electoral system. And that is uh, PRSTV, or Proportional Representation with Single Transferable Vote. Uh, Northern Ireland has 18 six-member electoral districts. Uh, Each citizen gets to rank their candidates one through six. Uh, And as candidates are either elected or uh, rejected, votes are then redistributed. Uh, This ensures that uh, that all preferences are voiced and that everyone gets representation in the Northern Irish Assembly. Uh, There are no set aside seats or quotas for either national group. Um, And it also allows for the growth of smaller parties, non-affiliated parties, who can vie for those lower order preferences. Um, As far as the executive goes, uh, it ensures power sharing, which was another key component of the consociational approach uh, and does this in several ways. The first way is there's a dual premiership. So there is both a first minister and a deputy first minister. And despite the the deputy in there, they share equal powers. Uh, And the first minister is chosen from the largest party of the largest designation, either unionist or uh, nationalist. And the deputy first minister is chosen from the largest party of the second largest designation, unionist or nationalist. Uh, originally, the first minister and deputy first minister ran on a joint ticket that had to be approved by a cross-community vote in the assembly. Uh, however, that became problematic as uh, members of, the other, uh, of one designation did not want to explicitly support a leader of another designation. Uh, So this was changed in the 2007 St. Andrews Agreement uh, so that the parties then nominate and choose the first minister and the deputy first minister. Also, both ministers uh, survive mutually. So if one uh, minister resigns, it automatically triggers the resignation of the other minister. Uh, So this ensures that both uh, nationalists and unionists share power in the state and have equal power and equal say in the executive and the functioning of the executive. Uh, As for the ministerial posts in the executive, uh, they do what's called a mandatory coalition. Uh, Instead of parties coming together after the election and discussing the allocation of ministerial posts, uh, bargaining, uh, instead uh, ministerial posts are allocated uh, to the largest parties proportionally uh, based on their vote share in a system called the de Haunt method, uh, which I will not go into because there's math involved. <laughs> but suffice to say that all the largest parties get a ministerial post proportionally based off the vote share. Uh, and this, again, ensures fairness and ensures that all major parties have a say in the functioning of the executive. However, minister, uh, parties do not have to take their ministerial posts that are allocated to them. Instead, they could uh, not take those seats. The seats are reallocated. And then uh, they can enter into official opposition if they so choose. Um, Also, there's no vote of confidence needed for any of the ministerial posts uh, in the assembly. So again, uh, no member of one designation has to explicitly support a minister of a different designation. also, the, there's one exception to the proportional allocation of the ministerial posts, and that's the Minister of Justice. Uh, the Minister of Justice is the only post that is allocated uh, based on a cross community vote, uh, as agreed to in the St. Andrews Agreement. Uh, currently, that post is held by the Alliance Party, which is a non affiliated party. Uh, and so uh, that Uh, Also, uh, the ministers do not have to take an oath of allegiance to the union or to the crown, which was a key stipulation for, obviously, the Irish nationalists. Uh, So that's the functioning of the executive. The assembly, again, you ensure proportional representation based off the electoral system. Uh, But also, members on the first day have to self-designate as either unionist, nationalist, or other which is basically not affiliated with either. And that becomes important uh, to fulfill the other uh, third condition for consociationalism, and that's veto rights. So the way veto rights work uh, I- is unique in Northern Ireland. Uh, certain key pieces of lezi- have legislation as designated by the Speaker of the Assembly, pieces of legislation that will majorly impact the functioning of Northern Ireland or majorly impact one or the other nationalist group is subject to two different types of of vote, and that's parallel consent and weighted majority. Uh, For parallel consent, you need a concurrent majority of both unionists and nationalists for the legislation to pass. And for the uh, weighted majority, you need 40% of unionists, 40% of nationalists, and 60% of the entire assembly uh, in order for the legislation to pass. And that ensures that all parties will have a say in the most important pieces of legislation that affect both their community and the functioning of the state and the system as a whole. Uh, So those are three of the major uh, conditions of consociationalism. The fourth, autonomy. uh, A lot of times, states have experienced segmented nationalist groups that have their own territory. That's not the case in Northern Ireland. They're very interwoven. Uh, So, autonomy is given in uh, cultural rights, uh, such as education, uh, language, and religion, Uh, but there is no self-government for nationalists and unionists because they're so interwoven. Two other really important aspects of the Belfast Agreement uh, are security and the cross-border institutions. Uh, and these aren't necessarily preconditions of consociationalism, but they were important aspects to ensure uh, confidence building in the state and ensure peace for the, for the foreseeable future. Uh, obviously, the key aspect for security was decommissioning and demilitarizing the paramilitary forces, uh, such as the IRA and the UVF, and that was a mandatory aspect of the agreement and a precondition to even entering into the peace talks. So that uh, process started uh, right away, though it hit some bumps along the way. Um, also, a major uh, aspect of the agreement was uh, getting rid of the uh, police service that had existed, known as the Royal Ulster Uh That was seen as heavily Protestant, heavily politicized, and uh, was they were accused of colluding with both the British Army and the UVF throughout the period of the Troubles. Uh, So nationalists uh, obviously insisted that a new system, a new police service, be put in place. Uh, And that system is known as the Police Service of Northern Ireland. And to further ensure that nationalists buy into and have confidence in this police service, they removed all symbols of the Union from the the badge, from the stations. They also removed the Union flag and the portrait of the Queen from police stations. And they implemented an affirmative action policy uh, to ensure that more Catholics are brought into the service. Uh, That uh, that, uh, affirmative action policy ended in 2011. And while they didn't reach 50% Catholics, which was the goal, they got uh, into the 30% uh, range, which is pretty good and has built confidence in the system. The policing and justice powers in Northern Ireland weren't successfully devolved until 2012, several years after the St. Andrew's Agreement. Uh, which was uh, signed in 2007, uh, where Sinn Féin finally accepted the, uh, the role of the Nor- police service of Northern Ireland, and uh, promised to continue to push for the decommissioning of the IRA, which was uh, supposedly successfully accomplished. Uh, and so th- the minister of justice position was fully devolved to Northern Ireland, and the police service, of Northern Ireland has full control over the security in the region. Um, So cross-border institutions were a uh, one-time controversial aspect of the agreement, especially with unionists. And there are three key cross-border institutions, Uh, the first being the most most controversial for the unionists, and that's a north-south ministerial council. Uh, and that is an all-island council that links the Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland uh, to address certain issues such as trade, food safety, waterways, health, agriculture, European Union programs, and it's just a way to ensure that the nationalists feel that their voice is being heard, that their community is being recognized, and ensures cooperation across the entire island. Uh, The second is the British-Irish Council, and the British-Irish Council brings together the heads of Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, the United Kingdom, Scotland, Wales, and the dependencies of the United Kingdom to ensure everyone's communicating, everyone's on the same page, that everyone can be brought to the table. Uh, and it focuses, again, on aspects such as environmental issues, agriculture, uh, the EU, uh, and education. Uh, the British-Irish uh, Uh, Intergovernmental Council is a really important body. This body, if the Northern Irish government ever collapsed, would be in charge of all powers devolved to Northern Ireland. And it's made up of representatives of the UK, Northern Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, And it's a significant threat to uh, the Nationalists and the Unionists, who don't want to see joint control of Northern Ireland by the UK and the Republic of Ireland, and so it's an important tool to use to keep both parties at the table, and keep both parties ensuring the continuing uh, support of the Northern Irish Executive and the Northern Irish Assembly. Alright, so what does Northern Ireland look like today? Uh, Here are uh, several maps of how the electoral patterns have broken down in Northern Ireland based off the electoral districts. Uh, You can see early on in around 1997, the time of the agreement in 2001, uh, the SDLP, the Moderate uh, Nationalist Party, and the UUP, the Moderate Unionist Party, were in control of the government um, and ensured moderate governance. Uh, Folks thought, at the signing of the agreement and before, that the more radical parties, Sinn Féin and the DUP, uh, could never share power, specifically because you know Sinn Féin hadn't fully bought into the police services yet, the DUP hadn't bought into the cross-border institutions, and had initially opposed the agreement. Uh, however, uh, starting in 2007, the DUP and Sinn Féin have successfully shared power, have successfully shared power in the Northern Irish Executive, uh, with the DUP's Arlene Foster, currently the First Minister and Sinn Féin's Martin McGuinness as the uh, Deputy First Minister. So the state has uh, continued to function and function properly, with the two more quote-unquote radical parties uh, in control of the executive working together to ensure uh, its continued governance. And some of their views have moderated over time. As I said before, Sinn Féin has has supported the police service of Northern Ireland. Uh, It has repeatedly denounced violence and ensured the full decommissioning of the IRA. Uh, The the, um, the DUP has bought into the cross-borders institutions, has supported power sharing as part of the Belfast Agreement. And so this, uh, in my opinion, shows the success of the consociational system in bringing the more radical uh, parts of two very uh, diverse communities, two very uh, oppo- oppo- opposed communities together to, to effectively govern the region. Uh, public opinion is also shifting more and more in favor of the agreement. Uh, as of 2015, 65% of the folks in Northern Ireland support the power sharing uh, as part of the Belfast Agreement, 67% support the police service of Northern Ireland. Uh, And still 65% want to remain in the UK as a part of this devolved uh, system. Uh, Within the DUP, support for the cross-border institutions has jumped from 17%, which is extremely low at the time of the signing, to 35%. Still a little low, but definitely the trend lines are looking good. Uh, And within Sinn Féin, support for uh, for decommissioning the IRA has jumped from 65% to 85%, Uh, and support for the consent principle uh, that ensures that as long as a majority wishes to stay in the UK, they will, has jumped from 55% to 65%. So the parties are moderating. People are buying into this peace process, into the agreement, and into the systems that have been built. Uh, There's been a massive reduction of violence uh, since the Belfast Agreement, and specifically since the St. Andrews Agreement. And the UVF and the provisional IRA have been fully decommissioned and uh, the violence there has plummeted. Uh, There's still some fits and spurts of violence. Uh, There's a break-off splinter group of the provisional IRA known as the Real IRA uh, that has caused some some violence from time to time. And most recently, uh, the biggest shock and biggest threat to the system in Northern Ireland occurred in 2015 uh, with the assassination of a high-profile IRA member. Uh, the, de, uh, the UUP, uh, the more moderate of the Unionist parties, uh, came out and said that that murder showed that the IRA is still functioning, that they haven't fully decommissioned, uh, even though Sinn Fein has promised that they, they've stopped operating. Uh, so the UUP actually pulled out of the government uh, the executive, uh, which they're allowed to do, and the seats were reallocated. Uh, and there was also a massive uh, impasse on welfare reform. All parties, though, were brought to the table, and they signed what's known as the Fresh Start Agreement. Uh, UUP has not re-entered the executive, though they haven't ruled it out. Uh, Sinn Féin and all parties agreed to uh, provide more oversight to uh, ensure that paramilitary forces are fully decommissioned, that uh, crime is, is a major focus, and to ensure that some of the peace walls can start uh, being broken down. Uh, So I think the fresh start agreement shows that the Irish government, the Northern Irish government, can take a major shock and can still function, and that the DUP and Sinn Féin are committed to sitting down at the table and working out uh, differences. And I know you're all concerned, but the welfare reform also went through, so. (laughs) Um, So all is not perfect, but power is being shared, Uh, confidence is being built, the system is functioning, has been able to absorb shocks, and uh, the communities are coming together. Polarization still exists. Communal hatred probably still exists at a, at a degree. Uh, but Northern Ireland is coming together as a community and as a region, uh, and violence is, is coming down. So I think this is a great example of how consociationalism can work to bring parties to the table, even the more radical parties. Uh, ensure confidence building, ensure governance, and ensure peace and stability. Um, one potential uh, destabilizing uh, factor for Northern Ireland is what's known as the Brexit, or the British exit for the European Union. Uh, both the Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland, uh, former President Bill Clinton, who is uh, deeply involved in the peace process, and several uh, MPs from the UK have suggested that a your Euro- uh, UK exit from the European Union could cause a destabilization of the region in Northern Ireland, uh, specifically because the Irish nationalists rely greatly on the European courts of human rights, rely on their ties with the Republic of Ireland, which are strengthened through both membership in the European Union. So that could be a destabilizing effect if uh, if the UK does decide to leave the EU. So I've been highlighting the successes of consociationalism and why I think it's a great approach to uh, regions and states experiencing durable and deep ethno-sectarian divisions and nationalist divisions. But there are critics of consociationalism, and the literature is far from settled on which approach is best if consociationalism can work outside of Northern Ireland or if it's even working in Northern Ireland. So I wanted to uh, make sure I gave you some of the critiques of Northern Ireland, uh, of uh, consociationalism, so you can think through uh, what you think is the best method for resolving peace, or resolving conflict through peace, and what's the best method of uh, conflict management and conflict transformation. So the first uh, major critique is that it fails to promote integration. I talked about the integrationist approach to conflict management. They obviously feel that accommodating ethnic division, doesn't promote integration in the long term, doesn't promote assimilation or a common identity, and entrenches the divisions for the foreseeable future. Um, And by privileging group identity over individual identity, it also discriminates against those in the state or in the region that don't uh, uh, belong to either identity. Uh, The second critique is that it is an elite-driven institutional approach it is an institutional approach, (laughs) that uh, appeases radicals and promotes social and political polarization uh, by institutionalizing ethno-national polarization. Uh, They believe that these institutions that encourage identity and ethno-sectarian division uh, encourage intra-ethnic outbidding uh, so that communities will vote for and support their more radical voices in power sharing agreements so that they can be represented against the other sides, more radical voices, uh, instead of a majoritarian system that would ensure that candidates for elected office have to reach out to a broad coalition in order to get elected. Uh, Another uh, critique is that it's less accountable with all major parties involved in the executive, there is no powerful Voice of opposition uh, that are as a check on the system, and then finally they say that it is a temporary a temporary solution, and that entrenching uh, ethno sectarian division will lead ultimately to the breakdown of the system in the future, and that it is not a durable solution to conflict. Uh, however, like I said before, consociationalists will say this isn't meant to be a solution forever and that hopefully it can organically decay. Uh, but again, that is the literature on that is not settled. And the solution in Northern Ireland is only not, is not yet 20 years old. And since 2007, it's not even yet 10 years old. So it's not settled on the case of Northern Ireland either. Uh, so that's what I have for our talk on consociationalism in Northern Ireland. So, I'm hoping we can, we can discuss a little bit about consociationalism and how it works, doesn't work, should work in Northern Ireland. So, here are some questions that I, I've devised for, for discussion. You don't have to, have to go off them. But, uh, could Northern Ireland be a model for other deeply divided societies such as Syria, Yemen, Iraq? Uh, does consociationalism entrench ethno national cleavages? making it only a temporary solution? And can consociational governance lead to integration, and should it, which is a question I think is often ignored in the literature, is should integration be the goal of, of states that experience deep division? Um, so I'll, I, hope, I hope you guys have questions, and I hope you have some thoughts on this.
0: So yep. I actually like a lot of the like, interest stuff. I kind mm-hmm. sort of remember. Good. Um, so, my question is: is has there ever really been an example of it kind of organically decaying into like into, like into having it be integrated? Mm-hmm. Um, because it seems like it does really create these cleavages and then they, they kind of cement. Mm-hmm. It, like, why would anyone want to kind of come out of that if they already st- if they have a certain amount of power in the
1: identities they already have? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely debatable, and it's definitely a question that's unsettled. Uh, a lot of people will say that a country like Switzerland is uh, a they call post-consociational c- uh, state. Uh, that Belgium could be a post-consociational state where those identities are getting less and less salient. Uh, though there, there are folks on either side of that. Um, certainly, uh, it being applied in the modern era is it's only been really successfully applied in countries like Lebanon and. Northern Ireland, and that's still a, an, a question to be seen. But the hope is that they could become like a Switzerland, like a Belgium, where identity gets less and less salient, and where a common identity of being Swiss or being Belgian comes into play. Uh, so uh, I would say some folks will say yes, some say no. <laughs> it depends who you ask. I a, a really good question. It's one of the, the interesting sort of developments we want to look for. Mm-hmm. Right. And th- there is um, another critique of, specifically, in Northern Ireland, is a lot of the civil society organizations aren't integrated. And there's still nationalist uh, civil society and unionist civil society. Um, and that there's still social divisions, even if there are you know, political, some political unity. Uh, on the social level, the, the peace walls are still there, separating Catholic and Protestant communities. And certainly the organizations that people belong to aren't integrated yet. Uh, But again, the the agreement is is very young in terms of uh, the stability of the state. So that could happen, but unsettled question for sure.
0: That are
1: still so separate? Like, do you think that there's a shift starting to happen? Um, I, I haven't seen evidence in the, the organizations yet. But certainly, attitude shifting that, that much uh, means that there's less animosity. And certainly, th- as animosity falls, people are going to be interacting more and joining more organizations. Uh, so I, I hope. But I don't think there's necessarily t- an overwhelming amount of evidence that communities are fully integrating. Uh, but I, I think there's I think there's a lot of promise for that.
0: Uh, do you think it would be uh, more difficult for Northern Ireland to integrate because there's only two really ethnic groups, whereas in Belgium and Switzerland there's three or four or
1: five. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I'm not sure, uh, but I, I would think that since the communities are so interwoven and they're not territorially segmented, that actually that could be easier for, for integration, uh, specifically, especially when, when the walls come down. They all speak the same language. Uh, really, the major division is, is religion. And I think with time, that'll become less and less salient. And again, the communities are so interwoven that Interaction is bound to happen uh, in my opinion as opposed to to places like Switzerland where there is territorial division uh, and linguistic divisions, Uh, so I actually think that's that's maybe more promising in Northern Ireland But again, this is decades (laughs) it's going to take decades as that that quote from Senator Mitchell suggested I think the best way is for for parties, specifically the non-affiliated parties, to start some of these these institutions and to start really competing for higher order preferences. Um, I'm not sure Sinn Féin and the DUP are prepared to fully integrate their voter base, Um, but I think the more moderate parties and I think that the non-affiliated parties can put an effort into into building non-affiliated civil society organizations. To bring people to the table and and that's happening. I mean the alliance party has a, a post in the uh, a major post in the executive uh, and as And the peace walls are coming down. So I I think integrating or building uh, new organizations and new society uh, society structures uh, That aren't based off the identity is going to be important um, as far as governing institutions uh, in the long run, I, th- I think it's best to keep doing what they're doing because it's working and there's still some, some shocks and vulnerability. And the DUP and Sinn Féin have only been sharing power for, for nine years. Uh, it's not enough time to assess the, the full stability, I think, of it. Um. Mm-hmm, we it's right. I think especially education is a tricky one, uh, especially with, the, I mean, Catholic community very, very much appreciates their <laughs> Catholic education. Um, cause that's a major part of, of uh, education in the Republic of Ireland is is Catholic education. So that, that'll that be tough. Um, I. I don't know when the best time frame for that would be. I I think you just keep conducting polling on how how attitudes feel. Certainly, once communities appear to be more integrated, where Catholics and Protestants seem to be living more and more in the same same area, then definitely build integrated schools. Uh, I, I don't know what the preconditions for that would be on the political level. Mm-hmm. Legislation. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering what exactly the makeup of the current assembly is in terms of like how many communists, how many nationalists, and whether that poses any
0: problems for
1: passage. I actually don't know the specific breakdown. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it doesn't pose any problems as of right now uh, for the the passage of legislation again uh, or the cross community votes to approve the minister of justice. Uh, certainly. The unionists are the bigger of the two designations. Uh, You can see that with the the DUP having the first minister post. Um, But still, the parallel consent means that no matter what the size differential is, it still requires a majority of both both groups, no matter the size differential. Uh, So no matter how small one of the, the designations gets, they still have that veto right. And I think that's critical uh, because y- you want to ensure that even a smaller minority can have a say if it's a salient um, identity. Do you have
0: any idea if non-affiliated parties are pulling for one of the particular
1: designations at all? Or non- NON-affiliated parties don't like the designations. <laughs> they want to get rid of the designations. They think it discriminates against them. They don't have a veto right. The others don't get a veto right. Um, and so they feel the designations kind of leave them out and privilege these ethno-sectarian divisions, these nationalist divisions. Um, so they're certainly not happy with it.
0: No, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I meant like now that they're getting more traction, are they pulling from either
1: one of the, desa- like, Oh, uh, who are they pulling f- yeah, from?
0: Yeah, do you know
1: at all? Uh, no, but I would, I would assume they're pulling from more of the moderate parties like the SDLP and the UUP. Uh but I, I don't know if Nuff's work been studying on these on those parties and, and who's voting for them. You mentioned the role of outside actors. hmm And then and, and I want to leave this to your other question is where else could we apply this model? You mentioned Syria. <coughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> everybody can see that the role of outside actors is pretty important in the Northern Ireland case. Mm-hmm. But also that the parties become exhausted. Yes. I, I think external actors, I think th- one of the biggest threats for Northern Ireland was the threat of uh, external governance of, the, Ire- of Ire- the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom sharing governance of Northern Ireland. Uh, no sides were happy with that. Um, I'm not sure if, if there is even a proposal that could be made <laughs> for th- a threat like that. I, I doubt it, <laughs> considering the External actors who are who are vying for influence in that region, um, but certainly I think in Syria all sides are getting exhausted, and certainly there's uh, now that specifically now that the U.S. and Iran have some ties, and uh, there are talks that bring Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, and the U.S. to the table. I think that that is the process that could probably best exert external pressures, having. Every state that influences the region at the table agreeing to something. <laughs> um, so I think individually, other, neither or none of those countries can exert the I- influence, but together I think they can. That's an interesting question that was raised there because in the Northern Ireland case, nobody, none of the external powers wanted to govern. No. <laughs> Right. There's also, I mean, the question is, who are the elites in Syria besides the Assad government? Um, the, the, the factions fighting the Assad government are so divided and not cohesive, whereas, you know, Sinn Féin, the SDLP, they were uh, cohesive, functioning uh, organizations that had recognized leadership. Um, so I think that is a major impediment to to peace talks to building a consociational model is the lack of leadership. So the consociationalism mm-hmm. then work primarily like it really is a domestic ethnonational conflict if there are too many like the Syrian conflict is not primarily ethnonational. I think that has, we've seen in the states that have tried to adopt it, that is the precondition. I know that um, the Iraqi model, the post-invasion Iraq model, was a consociational model, um, loose consociational, (laughs) McGarry and O'Leary will argue it's consociational. (laughs) Um, But uh, again, there are three identifiable groups there, the Shia, the Sunni, the Kurds, uh, that can be brought to the table, and that has the extra effect of being regionally territorially defined uh, which makes it a little uh, different than the Northern Irish case but um, certainly it seems where it's been applied uh, it's cohesive ethno-national groups um, as opposed to a state like like Libya where you have multiple factions of of tribalism that I don't think consociationalism would work at all in that in that region so it's not a catch-all in conflict States experience conflict, but definitely states experiencing ethno-national division, in my opinion. It's devolved, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know, if this, I know this isn't your of specialty, but did you, can you tell us more about policing in Northern Ireland, what the political considerations have been, or Well, uh, the, the big considerations were um, ensuring that the British Army no longer <laughs> uh, policed anything <laughs> in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I think that the biggest thing was having Irish national buy-in into the police service and ensuring that they have faith in the police service because during the troubles there were uh, no-go zones or, or zones where uh, the uh, RUC the police service before uh, Couldn't enter the British Army couldn't enter because they were controlled by paramilitary forces um, so I think the the most important thing was ensuring that nationalists bought into this service as not just a, a UK institution not just a Protestant institution uh, but a Northern Irish institution and I think the affirmative action policies to ensure more Catholics are hired was a big part of that. Certainly changing the name was a big part of that. Taking away the symbols was a big part of that. Um, and then, of course, devolving the powers away from uh, the central government in the UK and towards the, the Northern Irish government where, again, everyone has a say in the system. Uh, so that the policing is controlled through the N- Northern Irish uh, executive as opposed to uh, the government in, in London. I think that was the best way to ensure that policing is coordinated in Northern Ireland by Northern Ireland uh, with the support of everyone in Northern Ireland. Uh, But again, (coughs) support is only, uh, I think I said, 67% or 65% uh, for the police service. So it's not not fully there yet. But the power was only devolved in 2012. So it has work to do. Um, I think that they gave up the um, affirmative action policy was not the best idea. but uh, we'll see if, if they're able to maintain that 30-some percent that they have of Catholics um, and, and not drop below that. What's the uh, it is close to, I believe, 30%, 40%. Is that why they dropped the policy when it was of society, uh, No, there was a push uh, by the unionists to, to end it. And uh, basically, the parties agreed, yeah, this is reflective enough of the, the population differential that uh, it wasn't a major, that the nationalists didn't put up a major fight for to keep the affirmative action policy. I think certainly if you ask uh, people in Northern Ireland or ask people who are currently experiencing the division whether they want to retain those durable identities, they'll say they do and that it's very important to them. Um, But I think in the literature, most people in the decades ahead want to see a more united, integrated, common identity uh, approach. So I, I think it depends who you ask what they hope to see. Um, but I think the goal of con- uh, consociationalists, at least, that I've I've experienced, is ultimately a United United State. It doesn't have to be a trade-off, does it? I mean, you can have a shared identity and you're, you're right. You're right. It doesn't have to be a, a trade-off. I mean, the Welsh certainly have a strong identity but have no desire to leave the United Kingdom. So it, no, it doesn't have to be a trade-off. Um, but, but those identities will probably become less salient as integration happens. So is this the uh, uh, future line of your research are you going to
0: continue to work
1: on these sort of post conflict questions? It certainly is, yeah. <laughs> um, not necessarily consociationalism um, but certainly post conflict institution building how states uh, rebuild after a major conflict. I did my uh master's dissertation on South Africa and and the process there which you know I've I've studied before. <laughs> I wrote a paper on it for her class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so are you, do you have a regional specialty that you're going to Regional specialty? Yeah, the Middle East. Uh, again, I've taken Dr. Warg's <laughs> taken several of Dr. Warg's classes, so clearly I have some background in the Middle East. Um, I think institutions uh, are the best way to bring elites together, and I think elites have a great deal of influence over, uh, you know, people who follow them and their supporters. Uh, it's, it's a p- great way, there, there are a multitude of ways to design institutions to get certain results, depending on what you're looking for. And and there's strong evidence that institutions do produce those results, whether they're majoritarian uh, uh, results or proportional results. Um, And I think that if you build institutions the right way, they can can transform a conflict. Uh, I did (coughs) a lot of work studying uh, comparing and contrasting Tunisia and Egypt uh, after the the, um, Arab Spring, and the institution's in uh, Egypt were a lot weaker because of the strong role of the military, an another institution of the state uh, and that ended up having a destabilizing effect whereas in in Tunisia the military institution was was much much weaker uh, and that effect led to a greater civilian government. Um, so I think institutions play a major role in how states function, how uh, states can promote peace and democracy and stability uh, and certainly, there are folks who believe that that's the completely wrong approach and you should focus on civil society. <laughs> I certainly had a professor like that in, in my uh, graduate studies, but in my opinion institutions can produce societal effects. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I don't think many efforts have been taken as of yet. But um, certainly civil society plays an important role in how states function, how people react to their state, um, and how people maintain the peace. Um, And that can be promoted and should be promoted by the state institutions. Uh, How it's done in, in Northern Ireland is still an unsettled question. No.